Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Well, we're back with another week of travel news, travel tips, and travel chats. Have you joined that travel club yet? Well, here's why you should. You'll be the first to know when we're on the go. You get to be part of a fantastic travel club. We go to some wonderful destinations. We have amazing group trips and you get to meet and travel with some awesome people. All you have to do is go to TravelingCulturati.com to join in the fun. And don't forget to follow us on social media. I like seeing what you all are doing too. For those who do share with us, I like to see your travel jaunts, <laughs> what you're doing, where you're going, and those experiences that you're having. So make sure you connect with us so that we can continue to share. Today, we're taking a fantastic journey to Jordan. From biblical history to fascinating landscapes, we're exploring this wonderful country, a destination that is increasingly becoming a must-visit for 2023 and beyond. And we'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, I've got some travel news for you. Let's look ahead to spring and summer because the calendar is still moving very quickly. And we've got some great music festival lineups for 2023. And everything is back in full effect for 2023. So you definitely want to get your plans ahead of time if you're looking to go to any of the festivals. So we have Bonnaroo, we have Coachella, Cruel World and a host of other summer festivals coming up that you want to make sure that you mark your calendars for. So Coachella, if you want to know that lineup, you have Bad Bunny. You also will have Frank Ocean, Blackpink, and get this, Idris Elba. Yes, he's a rocker. (laughs) So he's going to be there. Tickets have already gone on sale. So you want to make sure that you get your tickets, package admission prices or general admission prices start at $4.99 for a ticket package. The dates are April 14th through 16 and April 21 through 23. And you can get information at Coachella.com. With Bonnaroo, you have a lineup of, this one is more rock and roll. You have Kendrick Lamar. You have Foo Fighters. I know those two. Yay. (laughs) But also Zed's Dead and Liquid Stranger. The dates are June 15th through the 18th. They also have on Bill Little Nas X. They'll have Sheryl Crow, the Pixies. So a whole slew of entertainment. So yeah, you might want to decide which ones you want to go to. Coachella is going to be in California, of course. And it's going to be at the Polo Club in Indio, California. And Bonnaroo is going to be in Tennessee. So vast differences here as far as landscape and what you're kind of looking for. There's also the Cruel World Festival that is coming up May 20th. And you can get information at Cruel World Fest. And they are going to showcase or in part of their lineup is going to be Echo and the Bunnymen, Iggy Pop, Billy Idol, 
Love and Rockets, and you know, a whole slew. So to get more information, oh, and it's going to be in Pasadena, California at the Rose Bowl. And tickets go on sale the 27th of January. So this is why I'm telling you about it now, because tickets are going to go on sale. If you want to go and you want to pay general admission or standard, you want to make sure that you get your tickets early because once those are gone and once those ticket brokers get a hold of the tickets, you know their prices are going to go up. There's also Tortuga Music Festival that's going to happen April 14th through the 16th in Fort Lauderdale Beach, Florida. Wiz Khalifa is going to be there, Shania Twain, and you can get that information at TortugaMusicFestival.com. Stagecoach is another one that will be April 28th through the 30th in Indio, California as well. April 28th through 30th. So that's the same location as Coachella, but they have headlines like Kane Brown, Luke Bryan, and Chris Stapleton. Then you have the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, uh, which will headline Ed Sheeran, Lizzo, Jill Scott, Robert Plant, and Alison Krauss, among others. We have two dates April 28th through 30 and May 4 through 7. So nojazzfest.com is where you can get that information. Tickets are already on sale. And they also have some great nostalgic lineup like Mavis Staple and Buddy Guy. So I think that's going to be a fantastic one. Sonic Temple Art and Music Festival coming up May 28th through May 25 through 28. Bottle Rock, May 26 through 28. Boston Calling Music Festival, that's obviously in Boston. That one is going to be on May 26 through the 28th as well. The Governor's Ball, this is going to be in Flushing Meadows, June 9 through 11. And also Harley Davidson Homecoming Festival, July 13th through the 16th. Summerfest will be June 22nd through the 24th, June 29 through July 1st, and July 6th through the 8th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, summerfest.com. Last but not least, Rockfest will be July 13th through 15th, and tickets are on sale now for that. So yeah, great lineup. Get your summer festival and spring festival on and make sure you get your tickets well in advance. Well, you ever get jet lag? Did you know that January 17th was National Lose Jet Lag Day? Well, neither did I. <laughs> but thanks to United Airlines and their credit card partner, Chase, they have launched a promotion bringing attention to jet lag, celebrating Jet Lag Day, which has now passed, but also bringing attention to jet lag. They're giving away a million United Mileage Plus miles to one lucky winner. You have to enter. And you'll need to do that and pledge to fight jet lag like a pro in 2023. United and Chase are teaming up with TimeShifter, a high-tech app that's designed by world-renowned scientists and led by Dr. Stephen W. Lockley, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and TimeShifter's chief scientist. Its mission is to help travelers understand jet lag and to tackle the causes of it. As a spokesperson for Time Shifter explained, jet lag causes significant human and financial loss from poor concentration and reduced productivity to less enjoyment and weakened immune function. Time Shifter debunks that common jet lag myth and replaces them with real science. And this allows travelers to control their circadian rhythms and they can take actions to ensure that they are their best selves. So the app works by allowing you to put your travel plans in 
and provide detailed outline of when they should see light and when they shouldn't. Reminders to reset their watches and when and if they should drink any caffeinated beverages. These are things that will help rebalance the traveler to their new time zone more quickly. And if you're not sure if it works, we have Mike Massimino, a former NASA astronaut, time shifter advisor, and he's also an avid user. And I'll quote him here. When I was an astronaut, we learned how to shift our circadian rhythms to prepare for rocket launches and spacewalks because our circadian clock regulates our sleep, alertness, and almost all other biological systems in our body. It was key to our safety, performance, and health. And this is according to Masamino. So you want to make sure if you want to participate in that, you can get the fine print at jetsetreset.chase.com. Jetsetreset.chase.com. Well, there's a new boutique hotel in Las Vegas. It's a boutique hotel that's already been there. It's being rebranded as a cannabis-friendly property. The Artisan Hotel in Las Vegas will rebrand as a new cannabis-friendly concept. The boutique hotel, located near Las Vegas Boulevard and Sahara Avenue, will undergo a multi-million dollar rebranding to become the Lexi. A spokesperson for the Elevation Hotels and Resorts made this announcement recently. The Lexi is described as a premium hospitality concept that will offer personal service and a spring-summer pool season. It will feature 64 remodeled rooms, including an entire fourth floor that will be designated as a cannabis-friendly floor. Those rooms will feature a state-of-the-art restore air filtration system, and this is according to the announcement. The Lexi allows the Elevations Hotels and Resorts brand to truly showcase commitment to creating a new type of hotel concept. You know, I really like the idea of the filtration system and having a designated floor because I have been in hotels that aren't designated as cannabis, but I can smell the cannabis. So kudos to them for the air filtration and for that designated floor. Capital One has launched Premier Collection Luxury Hotels and Perks for The Venture. Capital One has officially launched its portfolio of top-rated hotels called Premier Collection. This is hoping to get cardholders with the Capital One Venture X Rewards credit card to book with perks like on-property dining credits, complimentary upgrades, and free daily breakfast. Capital One unveiled its plans for its own collection of luxury hotels last fall, aiming to launch by the end of 2022. And as of this week, the Premier Collection is finally up and running. Every Premier Collection booking will provide you with free breakfast for two every morning, a $100 credit for dining, the spa, or other experiences on the property, free Wi-Fi during your stay, room upgrades, early check-in, and late check-out when available. And then you also earn 10 times Venture Miles per dollar on every booking. And you can use your VentureX cards, $300 annual travel credit for the hotel bookings as well. However, according to some comparisons to the American Express's fine hotels and resorts, which Capital One is taking a page from, there are some stark differences and there aren't as many available resorts within the Premier Collection at the launch. They are just stating that there are hundreds, but they will begin to add more and more as time 
goes on. So you'll definitely want to check them out, especially if you already have the card. So it's a program that is going to continue to grow. Now, Delta has launched the first ever service from Los Angeles to Auckland, and they have a whole lot more news that's coming up for the spring and summer of 2023, really taking them back to full restoration. They are forging its way to full network restoration, announcing new routes to Auckland and to Nice and added frequency to Paris and Tel Aviv. It's a new slate of routes that are in addition to the destinations announced last fall to Edinburgh, Berlin, Dusseldorf, Geneva, and to Stuttgart. Delta will be the only U.S. carrier to offer service between Los Angeles and Auckland. More seats across the Atlantic than ever before, including new service from New York to Geneva and London Gatwick and new flights from Atlanta to Nice. Delta is also boosting its transatlantic service from its New York, JFK, and Atlanta hubs starting this spring with more than 1,750 weekly flights to 85 destinations around the globe this summer. Delta is well positioned to deliver on its plans to fully restore its network in 2023, according to Joe Esposito, Delta's SVP, Network Planning. The largest summer schedule to New York, JFK in Delta's history and additional routes to Europe from Atlanta and Los Angeles. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and an exploration of Jordan with Visit Jordan. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you join that travel club so you can be the first to know when we're on the go and we go to some fantastic places. Well, I always love talking about destinations and I love it even more when I have someone on with me to talk about a destination that they represent. So chatting with me today is Janine Jarvis. She is the Deputy Director and Director of Communications of the Jordan Tourism Board North America. Hello, Janine, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, Javon. I am very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Through my profession, I am just seeing, and also in travel journalism, I'm just seeing this increasing number of requests and top destination lists with Jordan on it. Why is that? Definitely. Well, of course, I'd like to think that it's a lot of the work that we do here. But Jordan is definitely a special destination. I've been with the Tourism Board for 16 years, and I've definitely seen that growth of interest and demand. When I first started, Jordan was seen more as a extension or a combination with other destinations in the region. However, 
there's definitely been an uptick in interest. We've done a lot of work with the travel trade and tour operators, travel agents, getting them familiar with the destination. And I think that's kind of how we, in addition to a lot of our work with the media, certainly with media like yourself, influencers, content creators, and in this boom of social media, I think has definitely added to that uptick that you've seen. A lot of people see others going to Jordan. And that's kind of the material that we like to use and promote the destination is basically user-generated content, showing other people what travelers in Jordan are enjoying and experiencing. So generally, when we work with the media and the trade, for example, a lot of them become ambassadors. Jordan has a lot to offer. We like to call it a big, small country, and it's so diverse, and they're famed for their hospitality. So once we get people to the destination, it's an easy sell. People love it. They're always wowed by the amount of experiences you can do in such a small country and so on. So yeah, I would say that kind of is what is a contributing factor to the impact in what you're seeing. Where exactly is Jordan located? So Jordan is in the heart of the Middle East and it's well known as the Switzerland of the Middle East. So it sits between Egypt, Israel, Syria to the north and Iraq and Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of political news that comes out of that region. I guess that's what you mean by noisy. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's what I meant by when I say it was once a hard sell. No, not so much, because I think people are more aware of the region and the politics, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so it's also neutral. You reference Switzerland. So it's a neutral country as well. Yes, it is very and has been a big ally to the United States. I love social media for that aspect that when people show and share their experiences in a destination, even if it's a destination that is either unheard of or a destination that people were unfamiliar or didn't feel comfortable with, when it shows you how someone is experiencing it and they're sharing those and they see how easy it is. Mm -hmm. People take interest in that. So what are some of the top destinations that we look for in Jordan? Well, for sure, Petra is the gem. That is what is usually the draw in. But Petra, then Wadi Rum, which is actually one of my favorite places in Jordan, the Wadi Rum Desert, which is famous for a lot of Hollywood backdrop of a lot of Hollywood movies. For example, Aladdin was filmed there, The Martian, some of the Transformers films, Dune. It is the backdrop of many Hollywood films. The Dead Sea, of course, that's the only place you can float. And it's the lowest point on earth, as well as the biblical sites in Jordan are a big draw as well. Jordan is a big part of the Holy Land. And the baptism site where Jesus was said to be baptized at Bethany beyond the Jordan, the city of Madaba, the city of Mosaics, Al-Salt, which is an old traditional city, especially where Muslims and Christians coexist. It recently was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site for that tolerance and diversity. And Jordan is a great adventure destination as well, has lots of, because Jordan is quite mountainous and diverse in terms of its landscape, and it has quite dramatic mountains and so on. Jordan does have many canyons and gorges for those who like 
hiking and trekking, as well as canyoning. There are lots of canyons with waterfalls. You can repel waterfalls. You can do easy waterfalls. And people don't associate waterfalls and water sports in Jordan because they think it's a landlocked desert country. But really and truly, it's quite rich with a lot of diverse landscape. So you have that type of adventure. You have Aqaba on the Red Sea. So it has one of the best scuba diving sites. They have quite a few scuba diving sites and they do a lot of conservation and preservation of the coral reefs in Aqaba. So that's another popular spot. Amman, the capital, we can't forget the capital. The capital is a beautiful contrast between old and new. And it's a unique city. It's quite vibrant. Jordan has a youthful population. So there are lots of new things coming out in the city. You have interesting walking tours, art tours, street art tours, street food, fine dining. I mean, you name it. You know, you can do wine tasting. They do make wine in Jordan. They have vineyards and they cultivate their own wines. Some of them have won awards. So the culinary factor in Jordan is quite big as well. And then as you get north in Jordan, the northern part of Jordan, Umkais, which is at the top part of the country, is a famous Decapolis city with Roman ruins. And then you have the Greco-Roman city of Jerash, which is about an hour north of Amman. And it's one of the most well-preserved Roman ruins in the world outside of Italy. So Jordan has crusader castles in Ajloun and Karak, desert castles from the Islamic times and crusader times as well, Ottoman period. So, I mean, Jordan is an open air museum and it's a land of adventure. And hospitality is what Jordania and the people are most famed for. So, I mean, that's a little bit of what I could say Jordan has to offer. I could really go on and on, actually. But those, I would say, are the top highlights and top destinations. Yes, and I am absolutely intrigued because typically you hear of Petra and you see the images of Petra. And I think I have seen some of the images of the scuba diving, but to hear about waterfalls, because you do think of Jordan as a desert. And so you certainly don't think about waterfalls and deserts <laughs> at, the, at the same time. So it all sounds very intriguing. Now, I know you mentioned Petra, but for those who may not know, what is the reason for going to Petra? There's an iconic site there. Let's talk about that. Petra is a city built, carved out of the mountains of an area called Wadi Musa. And it is about, I would say, 23 square miles of a city. So the pictures that people see, the images of what it's called the Treasury Building or Al-Khazneh, which is the famous building that most people see. And it's the one that people see in Indiana Jones. That is just one of the entry facades of the site of thousands of those types of structures within the site. So Petra needs at least two days minimum to really kind of scratch the surface of the site. The site is made up of hundreds of different types of structures and tombs. So you enter through a narrow gorge and then it opens up and there's a Roman theater and there are Byzantine churches. It's really an experience more than just a site. Some of the local people actually were born inside the site before it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
back in the 80s, I believe. And then the people were built a town right outside the site once it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in order to try to preserve it. The Bedouins from the community are allowed to work within the site and they kind of manage the site as well. So Petra is really an experience more than just the site itself. And the classic tour of Petra, for example, is about three miles going in with a guided tour. And that's kind of the classic tour. And there are many different ways to explore the site because there are lots of back trails and hiking trails within Petra. So if you're putting together a trip or a program, Mm -hmm. if one wants to visit Jordan, what would be an ideal, and I know that the country, you know, offers many things, but what would be the ideal for a first time traveler to put together visiting Jordan? I would say you would have to give it at minimum seven, eight days, just to really touch the highlights and the high points, starting in the city, the capital, Amman. I would definitely give a full day to Amman and then go north. You know, you can visit Jarash, Ajloon, maybe even go as far north as Umkais, some of those ruins and hiking trails up in the north. And then usually the tradition is land in Amman, do parts of the north based in Amman, like you sleep in Amman, but you will travel north in the day, explore the city, and then you will start to head south. So from Amman, you head to Petra, but on the way to Petra, visitors will usually stop in Madaba, Mount Nebo, head to Petra, spend two nights in Petra, typically. And then if you are there on a night when Petra by night is happening, Petra by night, the site is lit by candlelight. And it's like, I usually recommend for visitors to do Petra by night the night before they actually visit the site during the day because it's kind of a introduction into the site, a kind of a teaser into what they're going to see and experience. And it's a different way to experience the site at night in the silence and under the stars or under the moon. It's quite wonderful. That experience is only offered on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So if you are in Petra on one of those nights, I would recommend doing the Petra by Night show and then visiting the site the next day. So two nights in Petra, and then when you move on from Petra, you go from Petra to Wadi Rum, and then you spend a night in Wadi Rum. I highly recommend spending a night in one of the camps, maybe one of the traditional Bedouin camps, There are different styles of camping that you can do in Wadi Rum. You can do glamping and luxury camping in luxury tents. It's become very popular to stay in these bubble tents. I'm sure people have been seeing a lot of those images, which are wonderful and beautiful as well for those high-end travelers who like that luxury. But then you have the Bedouin style camps that are more traditional with the goat-haired tents giving you more insight into what the Bedouin lifestyle is in the desert. And I'll tell you a little bit about the Bedouins, but just to kind of finish on the itinerary. So from Wadi Rum, you will do four by four excursions usually in the desert. They'll take you around the desert to different important spots. You can do a sunset camel ride or sunset tea. And then the next day you can drive 45 minutes to Aqaba and go from the desert into the Red Sea and go out on a boat, do a launch cruise. 
snorkel or scuba dive and explore the town of Aqaba, which is the coastal city. Jordan's second largest city is Aqaba, actually. So it's quite vibrant as well to explore. And then from there, we usually recommend heading to the Dead Sea. After Aqaba, you head to the Dead Sea. And typically, that's where I recommend ending the trip because it's only an hour from the airport. And it's a perfect way to rejuvenate from all the hiking and the walking and the touring because at the Dead Sea, it's very relaxing. There are beautiful resorts along the Dead Sea coast where you can float in the Dead Sea. They say that the oxygen level is higher at the Dead Sea, so it's a lot healthier and you get to float because the Dead Sea is filled with so much minerals and magnesium and we have the Dead Sea mud that is very good for your skin. People who have certain skin conditions do come to the Dead Sea for treatments. The resorts at the Dead Sea have some of the largest spas within the region. So you can get a Dead Sea mud treatment or scrub and spa, different spa treatments. And it's a perfect way to end the trip. And are there spa resorts there as well? Yes, there are spa resorts along the Dead Sea in Jordan. Sounds like a wonderful place to end nice and refreshed and healthy and vibrant. So it sounds like a very nice place. Now, I did want to circle back to the gastronomy that you spoke about. Let's talk a little bit more about that, what the traditional dish is, and then how the gastronomy has grown throughout the country. Yes. So Jordan does have some typical traditional dishes that are specific to the Jordanian culture. And the national dish is mansaf. And mansaf is cooked in a very unique way because they use a type of dried yogurt that's dried and can store for years, really. And with lamb and rice, and it's cooked together in a specific way. And it's usually served at celebrations, weddings, any celebrations, especially during the Eid holiday, which is the Muslim holiday, the Islam holiday. And whenever special guests come to a home, they tend to serve mansaf, or if they're just celebrating anything, that's a special occasion. And that's a national dish. In the desert of Wadi Rum, because Jordan is, their uh, culture is rooted in Bedouin culture. Most Jordanians come from a Bedouin tribe. And in the desert, because of the climate and the atmosphere, they obviously had to cook their food differently. And so they cook their food in a pit in the sand. They build a pit and they put, I think it's the rice at the bottom and then meats and vegetables on top in a kind of, like a kind of a stand that they put within the pit. And then they cover it with foil and blankets and then they cover it with sand and it cooks underground for a couple hours. And it's called Zarb, Z-A-R-B. And that would be the traditional desert meal that the Bedouins would traditionally serve. And it's some of the most tender meat and food you'll ever eat for those who do eat meat. But there's also the vegetable options as well. Those are more traditional to the Jordanian culture. Of course, mezzas are also a big part of Jordanian gastronomy because Jordan is kind of also a melting pot 
of different people from different parts of the region that come. So there's a lot of Lebanese influence and Syrian influence in the food you will see. So lots of Mediterranean style food as well. Very healthy, healthy food. Now, another part of the gastronomy that you talked about that I was surprised about is the wine productions. Tell us about that, because you don't often hear about that in a Middle Eastern country, and especially one that may be predominantly Muslim. As you know, in that region, again, it's a big part of the Holy Land. And from centuries ago, they've been making wine. You can actually see evidence of wine presses in many of the sites in Petra and in Jarash. There are some wine presses from the Roman period. But wine has traditionally been made in that region for centuries. And so there are some families who have farms out in the countryside, and they've pioneered the challenge of being able to grow the grapes themselves. And they've had to try many different ways because of the desert climate. And I don't have the full details on how they've actually done it. But from what I understand, they use a lot of the birds and different irrigation types to get the grapes to grow in the desert climate. And they do have a winery in Amman, in the capital. I think there are two companies in particular that I know that make it. One is the St. George wine, which is made by a family company called Zomat. And then you have the Jordan River winery as well. Talking about the region, I kind of think what the weather would be, but let's talk pretty much about the best time of year to go and what the climate is like generally throughout the year. We are really focused on promoting it as a year-round destination. Jordan does experience four seasons, kind of similar to the East Coast of the U.S. So spring and fall tend to be the peak seasons. Summer and winter are the low seasons. However, we've seen an uptick in travelers coming to the country throughout the year. And we're actually welcoming that because in the winter time, there is a different way you can explore the country. You see it in a different light. So for instance, winter falls, like I said, it's similar to the East Coast of the United States. So during the winter season, Jordan can get heavy snow sometimes. So if you're lucky and you're in Jordan in December, January to February period, you could see snow in Petra or snow in the Wadi Rum Desert, which is quite spectacular. And then the summers are hot, but it's not as hot as people would think because it's a desert country and it's in the Middle East. People think, oh, it's scorching hot and you can't visit. Well, only in certain parts of the desert does it get really uncomfortable. But to be honest, it's very similar to, again, the East Coast. It can get that hot in the summer, but without the humidity. It's a dry heat. So it's very doable to still visit during the summertime. But in the summertime, what we would recommend people consider is that if you are going to the desert for a 4 by 4 excursion, you'll probably do it early in the morning or late in the evening at sunset, as opposed to in the middle of the day when it's most hot. But otherwise, I mean, the springtime is absolutely beautiful because it follows the winter when there's a lot of rain and snow. And so it's like this desert country that comes to life. You'll see the Wadi Rum Desert and the sand is covered with flowers, pretty flowers. And the Roman ruins are 
covered and littered with beautiful flowers all through the ruins. So it does look different in the spring than in the fall. In the fall, after the summer, it tends to look more dry and arid. And in the spring, it's very lush and green and beautiful everywhere throughout the country. What are some of the defining aspects of the culture? Is it similar to the region or does it differ from the region? I think it's fairly similar to the region, but Jordan is different probably because they're rooted in Bedouin culture and Bedouin culture is geared around being welcoming to all visitors. There's a tradition that if you're in the desert, for example, if you are hiking and you come across a Bedouin family's home, which is their tent, they will welcome you in without even asking your name why you're here. They will invite you to come and sleep and stay and they will shelter you for two, three nights if you need without even asking your name. And they will feed you and they will make sure you are okay because that's just their tradition. They're very family oriented. Families are held to the highest regard in Jordan. And I think that speaks truth and testament to why they are such a neutral and peaceful country even throughout all the turmoil of the region. It's that being rooted in Bedouin culture. And I think one of the big questions that a lot of people have when you're talking about a destination in the region in the Middle East is whether or not it's conservative. Do you have to dress a certain way or Mm -hmm. behave a certain way? Although I think we should all think about our behavior no matter where we go, but (laughs) whenever we travel and be mindful of that behavior. (laughs) But I am asking specifically Because that's what a lot of people do ask. Do I have to dress conservatively? Do I have to cover my head if I'm a woman? Um, Those types of questions. Of course. Yes, Jordan is a little conservative, for sure. And like you said, anywhere you go in the world, you want to respect the local culture and traditions and travel responsibly. Now, Jordan is also quite liberal. The king went to school in Europe and the United States And Jordanians are very open-minded people. So in terms of how you dress, usually as a woman, especially, or even a male, you dress as you normally would traveling anywhere through the world. You can feel comfortable dressing the same in Jordan. It's just that when you're in the downtown areas or some of the more rural towns, women don't have to cover their heads or anything. We just ask people not to wear sleeveless tops or very short shorts. And that's just to respect the culture. And when you're going into holy sites, like any of the biblical sites, just like if you're going to church, you will cover your shoulders and so on. But otherwise, women are free to dress as they are accustomed. Women in Jordan dress very similar to those in the Western world. So yeah, you can feel comfortable. Dressing as you normally would. But just keeping in consideration those specific when you're in the downtown and in holy sites. Let's get to the utility of getting to Jordan from the United States and what those travel entry requirements are as well. Yes. So from the United States into Jordan with a U.S. passport, it's very easy. All travelers have to get a visa. But U.S. travelers can get their visa upon arrival at the airport The cost of the visa is 40 JDs, or about 56 US dollars. It's an easy process. Your passport just has to be valid for at least six months. 
and they do accept visa payment and cash payment. But I think the cash payment is only in Jordanian dinars that they accept. However, there are exchange kiosks as well as ATMs in the terminal. But you can use a visa credit card as well to make payment for the visa. Other than that, currently there aren't any COVID requirements per se, but there is a form that has to be filled out. There is a pre-registration declaration form that has to be filled out prior to checking in for your flight at the airport that you have to present. There's a QR code that you get once you submit that form and you have to present that QR code at check-in. Departure cities, where can you fly from the U.S. to go nonstop into Jordan? So nonstop flights, you can go from JFK, New York, Chicago, O'Hare, and Detroit, a nonstop on Royal Jordanian Airlines. That's the Jordan National Airline. And then there's a new nonstop that launched last May 2022 on United Airlines out of Washington, Dulles, into Amman. Fantastic. Well, I want to go. My bags are packed and I'm (laughs) I'm ready to go. How do we get more information about Jordan? What's the website? Visit Jordan.com. And we are also on social media and our handles are all at Visit Jordan. Fantastic. Well, Janine, again, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing Jordan with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. When I come back, I have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you join the Travel Club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And we're adding science to that list. Art and science are integral parts of a culture and the global culture. Today, I'm chatting with Michelle Renard, Manager of Exhibitions and Development for the International Museum of Surgical Science. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thanks so much for having me. What a pleasure. And I'm so glad that I discovered the museum. (laughs) So what is the International Museum of Surgical Science exactly? Yeah, so we are uh, located in Chicago. We're actually a division of a larger organization called the International College of Surgeons. The ICS was founded in 1935 by a surgeon named Max Thorick. Um, And you can see his name kind of all across Chicago, but he really wanted to have a place in Chicago devoted to the history of surgery. So he decided to open up the International Museum of Surgical Science with paintings and murals and sculptures all devoted to the history of medicine and important figures. Give us a little bit more about the history, how it was actually developed and when it opened. The museum opened in 1954, so 
During this time, the International College of Surgeons was headquartered at the building at 1516 North Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. And in the early 1950s, the next door mansion happened to go for sale. And he kind of swiped that up right away, knowing exactly what he wanted to do with that building and turn it into a museum. So the museum is located in a historic mansion that was built in 1917 for a single family. And he wanted first commissioned painter and a sculptor to make the Hall of Immortals, which is 12 stone statues devoted to important figures in medical history, importance for the discovery of antisepsis, anesthesia, and the importance of understanding human anatomy. Similarly, he commissioned an Italian painter to do the Hall of Murals, which is 12 murals all depicting the same figures in important scenes throughout medical history. And then beginning in the 1960s, they had a director of the museum who was also the world president of the college who solicited donations from each country of the world because the college is an international organization with sections in many of the countries around the world. So they solicited donations for objects to represent important feats in medicine specific to those countries. So they received donations from China, from Peru, Japan, all over the world. They were coming in in the 1960s and they started to devote each room in the home to a specific country. And that's really how the museum built up most of its collection. Well, let's talk about that collection. What type of collection do we have and how large is that collection? So the museum has over 7,000 medical artifacts and they do span all over the world and centuries of history. We have artifacts dating back to 2000 BC. We have a collection of ancient skulls from Peru that show evidence of ancient surgical procedure called trephining, where a hole was bored into the skull to relieve pressure on the brain or to relieve spirits that may be making you sick. And then we also have many artifacts that are specific to different fields of medicine, like the history of x-rays. We have some of the very first x-rays that were ever developed. We also have some really interesting artifacts like Napoleon's death mask and a perfusion pump that was developed by Charles Lindbergh and Alexis Carell. In what pockets of the period of evolution saw the most advancement or growth? I think that probably through our lens, we think that the evolution of medicine should be a straight line of progress. And that when we received these advancements, we were just getting better and better at surgery. But really, if you look at the history of medicine, it's not a straight line of progress. We have records of ancient writings on medicine and surgery where ancient procedures actually were more successful than what we would consider as more modern times. For example, with trephining, we've discovered that the ancients were actually much, much more successful than like Europeans in the 1500s were doing these same procedures. They had a mortality rate of 
like 80% of people that would die during this procedure. And in the ancient times, they had an 80% success rate. I think that we can't really look at everything throughout medical history through our modern lens. I also saw on your website that there is a fascinating library, as I think there probably should be or goes hand in hand with science and surgery, but it houses manuscripts and a rare book collection. Tell us about that. Max Thorick, the founder of the museum, he had a personal manuscript collection that spanned many years and had many important documents from the history of medicine. He ended up donating that to the museum as well. And the library is housed in the original Walnut Room Library of the mansion, but is now filled with all of these historic and important medical texts. So this library is also open to researchers who are studying the history of medicine and humanities. We allow them to conduct research in our library, and the holdings is available online for people to browse. Back when they first put the library in, they didn't really use modern cataloging systems. So we're in the process of updating all of that right now and making sure that if a researcher is looking for something specific, we would be able to find it. You're also in a unique location. You mentioned it a little bit as you were telling us about the museum in itself, but it's in the category of a small museum. So if you can tell us about that, and then also it's in a unique location as well as the facility or structure itself. So we are located in a historic home. This is definitely a larger home than I would ever live in, but it's one of the last remaining mansions on Lakeshore Drive. It's historically protected by the city of Chicago, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. And it's actually the only one that's remaining that's open to the public. It was built in 1917 by a Chicago architect named Howard Van Doren Shaw for the Countess family, Eleanor Robinson Countess and her husband, Frederick Countess. She was an heiress of the Diamond Match Company. If you think of matchbooks, that's kind of what her father and grandfather invented and where they built their fortune. So this house was built as a wedding gift to her and her husband. And unfortunately, later she died very young and her husband squandered the fortune, so they say, and the building just came up for sale at the right time where the International College was able to purchase it and turn it into a museum that's open for the public. It's in a really unique location for a museum because it is a residential neighborhood, but we are downtown Chicago on Lakeshore Drive, right across from North Avenue Beach. So we're in a nice location where if you were to visit the museum, you could take a short walk to the beach, or you could also take a short walk to Magnificent Mile, which is downtown Chicago, kind of the shops and eating area. And is the museum open during regular hours where you can just walk in, or is it more of a curated experience where you need an appointment? It is just open to the general public, and we do have an admission fee, but we also have free days. Right now, our free days are on Tuesdays in the winter, and you can find the specific days on our website. But Visitors will come in and it's four floors of exhibits where you can just wander through on your own through all the different rooms, medical history. And then on the fourth floor, we have a contemporary arts exhibit 
where we have rotating contemporary artists showing their work. None of the exhibits are an additional fee, so it's just one fee to walk through. If you wanted a more guided experience, you could download our app that has a self-guided tour and additional information on it. Or we also do have guided tours that if you have a group of people, you can get a tour by one of our educators going through the museum. What is the museum's contribution to the field of surgery, health, and medicine? I think as a history museum, we really strive to be an educational institution, providing a service to the public through educational programs and exhibits and allowing people to understand a part of our shared humanities that is really kind of overlooked, I think, in a lot of areas. A typical history museum, it's very focused and specialized. And even though we have a ton of medical schools in Chicago, we do see a lot of medical students and medical professionals, surgeons, nurses. And what I've learned is that most of these professions, they don't learn about the history of medicine in their classes. So they end up coming to the museum as a resource to understand how far we've come through the history of medicine. It's very interesting because I would think that with any field or any industry, it would start with the history of it. So that's very interesting. And so that makes it a huge contribution to the industry at large to be able to connect to the history. A lot of professors will use us as a resource for their field trips, usually starting in high school. Interesting and fascinating. So again, the International Museum of Surgical Science. Michelle Renard, thank you so much for joining me today. What is the website? Thank you. The website is www.imss.org. IMSS.org, the International Museum of Surgical Science, located right here in Chicago. Well, again, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.